This is reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. Episode 5, The Turner Diaries, Part 2, The New Era. When we last left Earl Turner, the organization had taken control of parts of Southern California, trained its newly acquired nuclear weapons on New York City and Tel Aviv, and begun its purge of all non-white citizens within its borders. It's an ugly series of events, with mass murders of residents and food shortages wreaking havoc in black and white areas alike. But it's nothing compared to what is yet to come. The Day of the Rope occurs on August 1, 1993. Now that most non-white residents have been purged, the organization sets its sights on the enemy within, race traders. They fall into two categories, those who betrayed their race and those who defiled it. Broadly, they're divided by gender. The betrayers, those who promoted or implemented the system's so-called racial program, are mostly men. The defilers, who had sexual relationships with non-white people, are mostly women. Their corpses are hung from traffic lights, trees, and light poles all over Los Angeles. Placards hang around their necks proclaiming their crimes. I betrayed my race. I defiled my race. The betrayers are mostly prominent men. Politicians, judges, lawyers, newscasters and journalists, teachers, and other civic leaders who furthered the system's liberal policies, for either status or career, or even, get this, their ideals. Referencing Judas Iscariot's betrayal of Jesus, Turner writes, The system had already paid them their 30 pieces of silver. Today, we paid them. The Day of the Rope was a direct response to a flare-up of pro-system rioting that was spurred on by the remaining Jews in the occupied territory. For years, the organization had been compiling a list of enemies, a detail which honestly sends shivers down my spine. It makes me think of Turning Point USA's Professor Watchlist. Once the majority of undesirables had been deported and the riots intensified, the organization was ready to strike. Even Turner is disgusted by it all, and his description of the events is grisly. One scene describes Turner coming upon a corpse blocking his path on a sidewalk, and I'll give you a chance now to skip ahead one minute if you'd like to spare yourself the imagery. Turner writes, The first thing I saw in the moonlight was the placard with its legend in large block letters. I defiled my race. Above the placard leered the horribly bloated, purplish face of a young woman, her eyes wide open and bulging, her mouth agape. Finally, I could make out the thin vertical line of rope disappearing into the branches above. Apparently, the rope had slipped a bit, or the branch to which it was tied had sagged, until the woman's feet were resting on the pavement, giving the uncanny appearance of a corpse standing upright of its own volition. I shuddered and quickly went on my way. There are many thousands of hanging female corpses like that in this city tonight, all wearing identical placards around their necks. They are the white women who were married to or living with blacks, with Jews, or with other non-white males. There are numerous other passages, even more ghastly than this, but I'll spare you the details and get to the point. 
The Turner Diaries is almost pornographic in its description of violence. The heinous acts carried out by both the organization and the outrageously demonized black population are painted in vivid relief. You see, unlike run-of-the-mill propaganda, the Turner Diaries isn't meant to be a persuasive document. It isn't written to convince the average person that white people are superior, the rightful inheritors of the earth, or even a persecuted minority. The intended audience for the Turner Diaries is the already converted, those who are already white supremacists, or at least sympathetic to that worldview. And this gives us a taste of what the white supremacist craves. Extreme graphic violence against people of color and any white people in favor of racial equality. It's unsettling, but perhaps what's even more unsettling is that the only significant difference between the violence of the Turner Diaries and that of mainstream media horror or true crime genres is the racialized element, the glorification of white violence against a subjugated minority. Without that, it's just another Tarantino movie or a cold case documentary. But The Day of the Rope, which claimed 60,000 lives, is just the beginning. Turner writes, The hanging of a few of the worst race criminals in every neighborhood in America will help enormously in straightening out the majority of the population and reorienting their thinking. In fact, it will not only help, but it is absolutely necessary. The people require a strong psychological shock to break old habits of thought. In one passage, Turner describes some soldiers beating a prominent actress, a notorious race mixer, to the point where she is no longer recognizable. Turner chastises the men for beating her so severely, not because it is cruel, but because it defeats the purpose of the hanging. Turner writes, What, I wondered, was the point in publicly hanging her if the public couldn't recognize her and draw the proper inferences between her former behavior and her punishment? But the men's supervisor tells Turner that the beatings are necessary for the men to blow off some steam, and Turner is sympathetic. In the coming years, as the organization captures more U.S. territory, this same program of extermination and public spectacle will be a necessary element of propaganda and reconditioning the public. And it's important not to lose sight of that purpose. That's been the same purpose of public lynchings of black people for hundreds of years. To instill fear. To serve as a warning to others. After the hangings, the remaining white residents of the occupied territory begin spontaneously murdering the remaining Jews among them. As in Nazi Germany, many white people had been sheltering Jews in their homes, but now, out of fear of retribution from the organization, they betray them. With the population cowed, the organization starts sorting the remaining residents into workgroups, variously assigned to carry out necessary tasks such as infrastructure repair and food production. These workgroups are also assigned to re-education programs, where they're propagandized with lectures developed by the organization, and are even graded on a combination of their work productivity and receptivity to the re-education materials. Of course, having control only of Southern California puts the organization in a very precarious position. Outside their territory, the system is mostly intact and has the capability to disrupt their nuclear warheads if and when they are launched. And, if all else fails and the organization can't be neutralized, the system has a plan to nuke all of Southern California. So, Earl Turner is sent on his most crucial mission yet. 
He, along with some other members of the order, are sent on a dangerous mission to cross 3,000 miles of firmly held system territory to manually deliver nuclear bombs in the East. Turner and his compatriots managed to make the trip miraculously unscathed, disguising themselves in brownface. As Turner and his team are en route, the organization successfully bombs Miami and Charleston, killing tens of thousands. Once Turner arrives in the Washington, D.C. area, they place their bombs in several strategic locations to be detonated as needed. And, after months apart, Earl is finally gifted one uninterrupted night with his beloved, feminine, if sometimes shrill, Catherine, before her ultimate demise just a few days later. Turner doesn't have much time to mourn, however, as his final task is finally upon him. A suicide mission to destroy the Pentagon. In the final events of the novel, nuclear chaos breaks out across the world. The organization, fearing the loss of its territory in Southern California, launches nuclear strikes against New York City, Israel, and the Soviet Union. The reasons for striking New York and Israel are obvious. Taking out two major centers of Jewish population is critical to defeating the system. The strikes against the Soviet Union are intended to instigate a response, enforce the system to enter into a hot war with the USSR. The mission is successful, with deadly consequences. All told, 60 million Americans are killed. At the time of Pierce's writing, that would have been just over a quarter of the country. In the aftermath of the nuclear war, Turner travels through the region around Baltimore, describing the devastation and carnage he sees. Bodies litter the roadways, buildings are burnt out, Automobiles are abandoned and obstructing travel. In that hellscape, the organization sets to forming militias among the remaining white population. With the system backed into a corner and poised to destroy the Southern California enclave, Earl Turner's final act becomes the organization's only hope. He pilots a crop duster armed with a nuclear warhead into the Pentagon. Turner's final entry is brimming with pride in the role he's played in the revolution and only a little regret that he won't get to see the new world he is helping to create. The book's epilogue sums up the end of the war and the five dark years preceding the new era. Thanks to Turner's valiant efforts, the tide slowly begins to turn in favor of the organization. They carry out a war of attrition against the system, creating all-white enclaves throughout the country and hunting down bands of people of color. As white people increasingly come to the enclaves, hoping to escape the food shortages and chaos breaking out everywhere, the organization develops a system to weed out the weaklings. The epilogue describes the practice, and here I'll quote, In Detroit, the practice was first established, and it was later adopted elsewhere, of providing any able-bodied white male who sought admittance to the organization's enclave with a hot meal and a bayonet or other edged weapon. His forehead was then marked with an indelible dye, and he was turned out and could be readmitted permanently only by bringing back the head of a freshly killed black or other non-white. This practice assured that precious food would not be wasted on those who would not or could not add to the organization's fighting strength, but it took a terrible toll on the weaker and more decadent white elements. After five years of fighting, A truce between the organization and the system is reached, 
and the remaining white generals of the U.S. military surrender in exchange for the opportunity to live out the rest of their lives with their families on an island off the coast of California. Then comes the mopping up period and the activation of organization cells in Europe. They quickly wipe out their own minority populations and race traders, and an era of white peace reigns throughout the Western world. While the epilogue doesn't describe any events in Africa, South America, the Middle East, or most of Asia, it does explain how the organization destroyed China through nuclear and chemical warfare. It's a little strange that the ending of the Turner Diaries celebrates the all-white world Turner and the organization created without explaining how more than half the globe is dealt with. But hey, why let such a small detail as three continents stand in the way of a good ending? So, there you have it. The Turner Diaries, a tale of an ubermensch on a genocidal mission to build a lily-white world free from liberalism and degeneracy. It's not a particularly good book. It makes clumsy use of the epistolary format, relies on incredibly simplistic racist tropes in lieu of any complex world-building, and follows a protagonist who basically never makes a single mistake, never changes his beliefs or worldview, and has not a single character flaw, unless you count grotesque levels of racism, which clearly the author and his audience would not. And the book probably would have been confined to the dustbin of poorly written niche fiction were it not for its influence among the extreme reactionary right. The book has been credited with inspiring more than 200 murders since its publication in 1978, including the infamous Oklahoma City bombing, the deadliest domestic terrorism act in U.S. history. On April 19, 1995, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols drove a rented rider truck into the drop-off zone of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. There, they detonated a homemade bomb. The bomb was made of 4,800 pounds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer mixed with diesel fuel, and it, along with the general structure of the entire attack, very closely resembles Earl Turner's attack on the FBI headquarters that destroyed the computerized passport system. The explosion of the Murrah Federal Building killed 168 people and injured hundreds of others. McVeigh cited the killings of civilians at Ruby Ridge and Waco by federal law enforcement as the motivations for the attack, saying, I wanted the government to hurt like the people of Waco and Ruby Ridge had. An hour after the attack, McVeigh was pulled over by a state trooper for driving without a license plate. He was arrested for having a concealed weapon. Little did the arresting officer realize whom he had just pulled over. On the passenger seat next to McVeigh was a thick envelope containing a series of documents, the Declaration of Independence, materials about the Waco raid, an anti-government leaflet, several quotations from political philosophers on liberty and tyranny, in pages 61 and 62 of the Turner Diaries. In the years prior to the bombing, McVeigh was a regular on the gun show circuit, traveling to state after state looking for like-minded patriots fearful of government tyranny. At these gun shows, McVeigh sold survival materials, alongside copies of the Turner Diaries. According to Terry Nichols, it was McVeigh's favorite book, and he was obsessed with it, gifting copies to friends and recommending it to nearly everyone he met. 
When McVeigh joined the army, he carried the book everywhere and shared it with his fellow soldiers until, finally, he was ordered to stop. In the years since, white supremacists have tried to disavow McVeigh as one of their own, that he was simply a gun nut with no racial agenda. But having read the Turner Diaries, I can assure you that no one would recommend, let alone sell, the book unless they had deeply held racist convictions. I mean, the Turner Diaries isn't a book about guns with a little racism sprinkled in. It's a book about the inferiority of non-white people and murdering them with a little guns sprinkled in. While the Oklahoma City bombing is the most notorious event associated with the novel, plenty of other individuals and groups took inspiration from the tale of Earl Turner. In 1983 and 84, a white supremacist organization known variously as the Silent Brotherhood, the Aryan Resistance Movement, or simply The Order, carried out a terrorist campaign that ended in the murder of a liberal radio talk show host named Alan Berg. The Order styled itself after the elite inner circle of the organization described by Earl Turner, funding itself in the same manner through armed robberies and a counterfeiting operation, though the bills were of such poor quality that they were practically useless and eventually led to the arrest of one of the members. The robberies, however, were very effective, and even after their capture, the FBI was unable to recover over $1 million. It is believed that much of the proceeds were distributed to white supremacist organizations, including William Pierce's National Alliance. In 1996, Larry Shoemaker of Jackson, Mississippi, shot 11 people, all black, killing one of them. According to his friends and family, Shoemaker's entire personality changed after he read the Turner Diaries. In 1998, a black man named James Byrd was attacked by three white supremacists in Jasper, Texas. The murder was as grisly as you can imagine, and, again, I'll give you a moment to skip ahead 30 seconds if you don't want to hear about it. The three men offered Byrd a ride home, but instead took him to a remote area where they beat him severely spray-painted his face, and urinated and defecated on him. The men then chained the still-conscious bird to the back of a pickup truck by his ankles, dragging him for three miles along an asphalt road. Forensic evidence suggested that James Bird was alive for much of the ordeal. They dumped what remained of his body in front of a black church, and then headed off to attend a barbecue. One of the killers confessed that during the incident, his partner joked, we're starting the Turner Diaries early. The Turner Diaries even jumped across the pond, inspiring a series of attacks in the UK. The 1999 London nail bombings, which targeted black, Bengali, and LGBTQ people across London. The bomber, David Copeland, was a militant neo-Nazi. During interviews, Copeland told police, If you've read the Turner Diaries, you know the year 2000 there will be the uprising and all that racial violence on the streets. My aim was political. It was to cause a racial war in this country. There'd be a backlash from the ethnic minorities. Then all the white people will go out and vote BNP, referencing the far-right British National Party. These are just a few of the events known to be inspired, at least in part, by the Turner Diaries. And who knows how many countless other attacks grew from a seed planted by William Pierce's novel. The book, still published by the National Alliance's press National Vanguard Books, sells for $24 on Amazon, where it has a four-star rating. One reviewer called it 
required reading for all patriotic men, praising its description of the current political and social instability, quote, brought on by uncontrolled illegal immigration and a stressed younger generation realizing its productive years are being spent in a hopeless mire of economic futility. Another reviewer writes, Maybe the majority of people, the sheeple, won't be able to grasp the true reflection this book has on the Western world in 2020. If, on the other hand, you were fully aware of the strings being currently pulled, and more importantly, who are pulling them, then this book should probably be taught to our kids in school. Awake, common man. That last bit is, of course, in all caps for emphasis. So, why this particular book? There's quite a bit of racist right-wing fiction out there, but The Turner Diaries outshines them all, and it's not even close. Other books in this genre are better written, have more compelling characters, and a more interesting plot. Even Hunter, Pierce's companion novel, is just a better book in general, and was also a favorite of many of the killers I just mentioned, including Timothy McVeigh. I've recorded a supplemental episode on Hunter for the Patreon feed if you'd like to hear about it. But Hunter and other white supremacist novels have gotten relatively little attention from the mainstream. So, why The Turner Diaries? In his paper on the subject, The Turner Legacy, The Storied Origins and Enduring Impact of White Nationalism's Deadly Bible, researcher of extremist political activities J.M. Berger offers a few of his own explanations. He outlines several literary techniques used by Pierce to have maximum effect on the reader. The call to action, emphasis on authenticity, reflections on the objectives of terrorism, and practical guidance. As I mentioned earlier, The Turner Diaries isn't written to persuade readers to be racist, and it doesn't seek to justify its own worldview. Instead, it offers concrete calls to action, as in one passage where Turner laments all the times white men didn't stand up to social change, like school integration and gun control. The Nazis warned us, Turner complains, and in these reflections, the reader is directly called on to reflect on their own actions. Particular ire is directed at conservatives, with Turner writing, Of all the segments of the population from which we had hoped to draw new members, the conservatives and right-wingers have been the biggest disappointment. They are the world's worst conspiracy mongers, and also the world's greatest cowards. The implication is hard to miss. Hey you, conservative, are you listening? Are you paying attention? Are you ready to fight? The emphasis on authenticity that Berger points to is also compelling, and even I have to admit that I enjoyed the occasional notes-to-reader that explained currency, measurements, and social movements to the inhabitant of the new era in which we finally, finally, switch to metric units. The foreword and epilogue, combined with the jumpy plot that plays up how often Turner is working in the dark, create a pretty decent sense of authenticity, though the overly technical elements feel shoehorned into the diary format. Explaining complicated engineering tasks isn't exactly normal diary content. Berger's point about the insightful reflections on the objectives of terrorism is probably one of the novel's most compelling features, and combined with the call to action and practical guidance have a dangerously alluring effect, as we've already seen with the novel's capacity to inspire violence. In the pages that Timothy McVeigh carried with him on the day of the Oklahoma City bombing, one paragraph from the book was highlighted. The real value of our attack today lies in the psychological impact, 
not in the immediate casualties. More important, though, is what we taught the politicians and the bureaucrats. They learned this afternoon that not one of them is beyond our reach. They can huddle behind barbed wire and tanks in the city, and they can hide behind the concrete walls of their country estates, but we can still find them and kill them. Berger offers a few more reasons that the Turner Diaries has had such an enduring impact among right-wing extremists. One is the narrative simplification that offers a bare-bones story with enduring relevance beyond any specific time period. By not getting bogged down in the specifics of historical figures and events, the book extends its shelf life. It also creates its own ideological vacuum insofar as it doesn't cater to one specific branch of right-wing racism, such as Christian identity or the American Nazi Party. It's ideologically vague enough to appeal to just about anybody who believes the white race is superior and that violent revolution is, if not entirely justified, an intriguing prospect. One of the reasons I'm so fascinated by right-wing ideology, and the Turner Diaries in particular, is how so many of the social ills it critiques are the same problems those of us on the left worry about. Atomization, alienation, government corruption, crumbling infrastructure— and lack of opportunities for regular working people. In studying these movements, I often find myself wondering how people can look at these challenges, real problems that cause real human suffering, and come away with such radically different ideas about their causes and what solutions we should work toward. We often agree that members of an elite class exploit us, propagandize us, divide us, but we have fundamental differences about who those elites are. A capitalist and political class composed primarily of white men who seek to extract value from our work, or a sinister global cabal of Jews who, for millennia, have infiltrated every corner of power in Western civilization. These are questions we certainly won't be able to answer in episode 5 of this show, but we'll return to them time and again. Who is to blame for our suffering is a driving question behind all politics and its answer can have catastrophic consequences for minority populations, as we've seen throughout history. In a lot of ways, it's more comforting to pick an ethnic scapegoat who can simply be wiped out in a nuclear war than an entire economic and political system that you rely on to survive. As one of William Pierce's work colleagues put it, he was looking for a simple solution to the problems of the world. Before it was banned for inciting violence, Users on the Donald Trump subreddit often refer to some vague event called DOTR. It's a great shorthand and dog whistle because it flies under the radar of things like algorithmic monitoring for hate speech and prying liberal eyes looking to prove that Trump's base is full of racist zealots. I myself had seen DOTR on forums like Reddit and 4chan in the past without knowing what it referenced. But once you make the connection, it's absolutely chilling. The day of the rope when the race traders are finally hung from every streetlight in town. At the September 29, 2020 presidential debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, Trump was asked directly to denounce his white supremacist supporters. His response activated alarm bells on both the left and the right. Stand back and stand by. Some commentators said that Trump simply misspoke or jumbled his words, something he often does. But regardless of what Trump intended to say, his supporters on the far right quickly went to 4chan to celebrate. Some quotes from the posters that day. Kill squad standing by. Yep, I'm thinking Trump is the Fuhrer again. 
and Day of the Rope confirmed November 3rd. And if you think simply getting Donald Trump out of office will squelch the fires burning on the far right, you haven't been paying attention. The Turner Diaries has been central to the canon of neo-Nazi literature for more than 40 years, and we can certainly expect it to last for many decades to come. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it, and consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates and commentary on current events. Send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time.